Let's find Romans chapter 7. Thank you, musical team, for leading us in that. We do appreciate the work you put into it. Romans 7. If you're just joining us this morning, we're in the middle of our study through the book of Romans and in the middle of our study in chapter 7. We're going to be looking this morning specifically again at verses 13 through the end of the chapter. And once again, I'm going to do more of a general message over this passage, and I think next time we'll jump into the particulars. There were a number of things I wanted to speaking about this passage that able to do last week. Before I read these verses, just remember the first six verses is dealing, well, the whole chapter is about the law. Remember, it's used about 20-something times in here. Uh, Paul finally dealing with the Mosaic law, its role in the believer's life. By Mosaic law, we mean the things you read about in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, really specifically in those Ten Commandments that you hear about and and that you would read about in Exodus chapter 20, the heart of the covenant that God made with His people. And in those first six verses, we learn that we are free in Christ from the law. Specifically by that we mean not that we can live lawless lives, but that we are not under the law's condemnation. And in order to get right and stay right with God, we do not need to keep the law. Now, we should keep the law, and we will keep the law, and we'll get more to that in Romans chapter 8, but it's important to know that that isn't for our getting right with God or staying right with God, that Christ has satisfied those demands for us. So we're free in that way. And then if you'll remember, in verses 7 through 13, Paul gives a personal testimony of his past before Jesus with his experience with the law and why the law is such a problem with sinners. He showed that it was because he was a sinner that the law that he tried to keep actually condemned him and brought about death because the wages of sin is death and he couldn't keep the law. And that was because he's a sinner. So the sin mixed with his, his sin mixed with the law was a problem because he couldn't keep it. And he reveals that about that past experience there in verse, verses 7 through 13. But then he shifts in verse 14 through the end of the chapter No longer talking about his pre-Jesus days, but now talking about him as a believer. And guess what? There's still a problem he has with his own indwelling sin and the law. He wants to keep the law and still finds that he fails in this. That sin is still present with him and he is greatly bothered by it. It's important to note. He cannot fully keep the law, and he's greatly bothered by that fact. So what I want to do as I read these verses, once again, begin, we'll begin in verse 14, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And I want you to ask the same question I had you ask two weeks ago when I preached on this. 
Does this resonate with you at all? Have you experienced what Paul is saying he's experiencing? Okay, and I'll explain to you why that's so important. Now listen to this in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see another, in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's just pause now and ask the Spirit to open this up to us. Father, now we confess our need of you once again, the need of your Spirit to illuminate the words on this page to our hearts and minds, and for me to preach in a way that is understandable and helpful and encouraging and with love. So I pray that you'd help me now to do that, uh, not for my sake only, but for the sake of your glory and for your people here. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I read that passage, did it resonate with you? Paul, we're talking to you and just relaying this to you as experience. Would you be able to say, man, I know exactly how you feel. I've been through that or I'm going through that. I've had times like this, Paul. I know exactly what you're describing here. If you can say yes to that, and if this resonates with you, that's a really good sign. That's a sign that God has given you the new heart He's promised and His Spirit's in you. It's a really good sign that you have been born again. It's a mark of the true Christian that his or her sin bothers them. You see, friends, we are not perfected yet. We have been justified, so we're saved from the penalty of sin. And um, we have also are able to pursue holiness because we have been set free from the 
power of sin to dominate us. We're no longer slaves of sin. Remember Romans 6? You're not a slave of sin. But the presence of sin, that nagging presence of sin was still with Paul, is still with you, is still with me all the way until we're redeemed finally and fully at the resurrection and saved from the, even the very presence of our sin. That's what we're at. Romans 7 will always be somewhat a, a part of our lives and an experience, and in true believers will resonate with them all the way until the end. And friends, I said that this was a good, it's a good thing if this resonates with you, and that it's a sign of the fact that God has worked in you, His saving power, or is working in you, His saving power, because this is a passage of conviction. This is a passage in which Paul is describing what we would call the conviction of sin. You've heard that expression, I'm sure. It runs around in Christianese all the time. The conviction of sin. Jesus was teaching His disciples in the upper room. We call it the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17. He was teaching them uh, right before He went to the cross, and He was instructing them about what was going to happen after the cross and a lot of what that age was going to be like. Because in Christ, a new age was dawning. Something new was beginning. Graham did a great job of bringing that out last week. And the key feature of this new age among the people of God would be this working of the Holy Spirit in them in very powerful ways. And the way that working would begin, Jesus described in John chapter 16, verse 8. He said, When He, that is, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to do a convicting work within the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this is important to note. This is one of those passages in which John uses the word world... And when he uses that word world, he is not meaning every single person in it. Because quite frankly, this is an example of if that's the truth, then every single person would be saved. Because this is a work that God does within the hearts, by the Spirit, only of those He's about to save. The reason I know that is this. Look, if you look at that verse again, put that, keep that up on the screen for a minute. That word convict, we sometimes use in courtroom terminology if somebody got convicted of a crime. So they went through a trial. At the end of the trial, the jury stood up, convicted them of that crime. Now that person could be maintaining their innocence all, all the way up to that point and even beyond it. They could be saying, they convicted me, but it's a false conviction. I'm innocent. But this word in this context has a slightly different meaning. Listen to this, and I just put it up there, the next slide. To convict is to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing. 
Notice this, to convict or convince someone or something. So that when the Holy Spirit has done this to someone, they're no longer maintaining their innocence. They are inwardly convinced of this. They feel it in themselves. They know it to be true. And in this case, it's what? I'm a sinner and I lack the righteousness I need and I'm under God's righteous judgment. When people start talking like that, you know, you know that the Spirit of God is working in that person. That salvation for them is near. It's right at the door. As a matter of fact, some of you in this room could be going through a time that you could, you'd have trouble describing it to people if you tried, but you are going through this time where all of a sudden inwardly in you, and this could have been going on for days or weeks or months or perhaps even longer, where you know something's unsettled and you're no longer enjoying the same things you used to enjoy. And you start to become conscious of the fact that you're doing wrong. And you're starting to know that God is not happy with this. Maybe you've heard about the Bible and maybe you've been familiar with the understanding of condemnation and hell. And and all of a sudden you're feeling this great burden upon you. This burden of sin and wrongdoing and you don't know what to do about it. Friends, I would say to you this, that you could be probably under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You have now become convinced. You're no longer denying it. Listen, look at the world now. Does the world, is the world convinced of its own sinfulness? We are right now in our nation in a month in which they're celebrating their pride in their rebellion against God's holy law. Does the Spirit convict everybody of their sin? No. This is a special work He does within the hearts of those He plans to save if it's happening to you. Friends, what the Spirit would do now is tell you, look to Jesus now, the solution to all of your sin, your Savior, the only one who can rescue you. He'll lead you to that. But this is a passage of conviction, and interestingly enough, Paul last week gave a pre-Jesus testimony about that. But remember, this is present tense verbs. These are present tense verbs that he's using. This is an experience he's still having, meaning Christians still experience this convicting uh, nature of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. They're convicted of it. They're convinced of their own sin and it doesn't end when we come to faith in Jesus. We still know we're sinners. This passage describes a person under deep conviction of sin. Have you ever experienced that? Some of you in this room, because just of the amount of people in here, we could venture to guess that there are unbelieving people in this room or unsaved people in this room. And for you, sin just isn't much of a problem at all. And you read Paul's words here, 
there's angst and you feel nothing. You're like, wow, that's weird. Maybe he's depressed. Maybe he needs therapy. I don't know, but I've never experienced that. Friends, I would tell you this. You need to look to Jesus. And you need to plead with him to send his spirit to you. To change your heart, to let you be convinced of the spirit. Sometimes we tell people, tell little kids, ask Jesus into your heart. I'd say, look, ask Jesus to change your heart. That's a better prayer, more biblically accurate. Ask Him by His Spirit to convince you of your need of Him. Maybe you don't, you're not even convinced of Christianity. You're not convinced of the reality of it. You're, you're not convinced of who He is. You, don't, you really you, you see what He's saying, but you don't necessarily feel that yourself, friends. I'm not throwing any stones at you. I want you to go to Jesus and say, if this is true and I am in real eternal trouble, then Jesus, help me and change my heart and show me. Many people have been saved by praying a prayer just like that. God, if you are real, show me. Jesus, if you are real, show me. Teach me. You know, we serve a God who loves to save people. He's a Savior. He's God, our Savior, and He loves to save people. There's nothing that is stopping or preventing a person from looking to Jesus Christ in salvation. That's why the offer of the gospel goes out with the command, really, repent and believe. It's a very valid offer. This is a passage of conviction. But it's also a passage of discouragement. It's a passage of discouraging. This passage is neither positive nor encouraging. If it were lyrics to a song, it wouldn't make it on K-Love. The experience that Paul is having here is not positive. It's very negative. There is something significant and a very severe tension within him. Much angst is what I like to say. I mean, look at verse 24 where he lands. He's, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He is greatly discouraged in this passage as he's writing and describing this experience. And friends, This angst over our own indwelling sin should be a part of our life. Now, I want to make it clear that it should not be the only experience of the true Christian life because Romans 8 is coming, right? And Romans 8 is a passage of progressive power by the Holy Spirit that enables us to put to death the deeds of the body, to begin gaining victory over sin. So I don't want any miscommunication here. We don't just end in Romans 7 with, oh, wretched man that I am, and we walk around in that way. But this does describe a part of the Christian experience all the way to glory because throughout that whole time, 
we still have this indwelling sin in us. So that you're experiencing this maybe in a moment of time. Because that sin you've tried so hard to conquer and you thought you had under wraps, you sinned once again. And now, once again, you're in Romans 7 for a time. Sometimes Christians can go through this for seasons of their life. They seem stuck, uh, like, on a, like on a treadmill. They're running, but they're not going anywhere. And they're kind of s- stuck with the burden of their indwelling sin. It happens. It's a discouraging passage, and I'm so glad Paul put it here. I'm so glad there's passages like this in the Bible that can help us when we're in those seasons and in those times. When you're feeling that indwelling sin, and you're feeling the loss of uh, the victory that you want uh, in a certain area, and you're feeling that, you can come back to this and say, yes, because Paul experienced this too. I experienced it. It's part of the Christian life. I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to get into Romans 8, but at least I have these words that articulate exactly what I'm feeling, that I don't think that I am some kind of freak of Christianity here, that it's just me. Did you ever notice how useful the Bible is? How incredibly real it is and gritty. You know it comes from God and not from men because it has things in here that men would tend to hide. Like their own failures and their own sins and their own fears and their own frustrations and their own anger. Have you ever read through some of the psalms and the psalmist expressing all different kinds of emotions to God? Read through the prophets. Read through the prayers of the saints in the Old Testament. Read through portions just like this. The Bible is helpful to us in this. It gives us these experiences because you think about it, Romans 6 was kind of a high point, right? It's like You're no longer enslaved to sin, walk in the newness of life, and you're going to town on that. Romans 8 is going to be a high point, right, by the Spirit, but Romans 7 is a valley. And doesn't that perfectly describe the Christian life? Sometimes you're up, and sometimes you're down, and sometimes you're just in the middle. The Bible covers all of those areas for us. gives us words to use and gives us assurance and comfort that nothing strange is happening to us. Part of every Christian experience is struggle. So we need God's Word in its entirety to help us through those time periods, don't we? Now let me ask this question and then answer it. Why would God leave sin in us when He saved us if at times it was going to make us miserable? Why did He not just perfect us when He saved us? I wonder if you've ever thought about that. Or maybe let me do this. Maybe you've struggled with a sin and you've said, God, why don't you just take the desire for this away? Before I got saved, I loved being drunk. It was my favorite activity. I loved it, craved it, wanted to be drunk all the time. It was a problem. It became a real problem in my life. But interestingly enough, when I got saved, 
that desire went away. And it has stayed away for all these years. I've had, I don't really desire being drunk. As a matter of fact, drunk people now annoy me. I didn't realize how annoying I was. I thought everybody, no, no, it's just you, Jess, you drunk, you know. Uh, Drunk people annoy me now. I don't have any desire to be drunk. He took that sin away, but I could list to you, and I'm not going to, a bunch of other sins and temptations that are still there. Why does God do that? I'm going to give you two suggestions. I think there's a lot of answers to that question. But let me give two right now. First, and I think this is probably the most obvious, the revelation of our sin, our own personal indwelling sin, points us to Jesus and our need of grace. Not just when we got saved, but every single day. We sung just a few minutes ago, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, you see. We, when we feel that, when we sense that, we understand more and more that we can't save ourselves. We couldn't then. We can't now. We need grace then and now and all the way into eternity, you see. We are a grace-needy people. And when our sin, the more it's exposed, and if we turn to Jesus and we look at Jesus and we stare at the glory of Jesus, how much more glorious does He appear to sinners then when we know He's our righteousness? And we understand that He paid for those sins and that we are forgiven of all of them. See, this this idea of this constant revelation of our own sin, this revealing of it as we're trying to keep the law and we can't and we understand that we keep failing. Friends, it just points us over and over again every day to Jesus and His grace. Because we as Christians never graduate from grace. We never get handed a diploma. Congratulations. You've graduated from grace now. Go out and live for God on your own. No, every day it is grace. Every moment it is grace. If we have this sin within us and it's revealed, we're reminded once again, I think sometimes for us to alleviate our pride and our self-sufficiency, God, in His gracious sovereignty, will allow us experiences in which we will see afresh our own sinfulness again. Just as a gospel reminder to us, by His grace, of who's actually going to complete this good work, who actually began it and is going to complete it. It's Him. It's all by grace, you see. You need Jesus today. You, you need Him every bit as much now as you did the first moment you believed. And secondly, friends, why does God leave this in this? I think, let me offer this second suggestion. It is important for us as Christians at times to walk through the valleys. 
how important it is for us to walk through valleys at times, even of valleys of our own sin and our own failure and our own doing. For one, when we walk through those valleys and God delivers us out of them, so you're in a Romans 7 period, God delivers you out. I mean, who gets the glory for that? Who's getting the praise for that? He's delivered me once again. He's restored my soul once again. He's filled me with peace and joy once again. What a gracious and good and glorious God. And doesn't that then increase your love for Him? With all your heart and soul and mind, you praise Him. I love this. I'll I'll take the time to show it to you. Look at Psalm chapter 40. Let's quickly find Psalm 40. If you're using one of our Bibles... It's on page 594. Psalm 38. And Psalm 39 and Psalm 40 go together. Psalm 38 and 39 are laments, much like Romans 7, where David is lamenting his own sin. It's one I read a couple weeks ago in, in Psalm 38. Remember, he says, My Sins are more than the hairs on my head. They're too heavy for me. I can't bear them. I'm suffering for my own foolishness. He's saying, oh, wretched man that I am. But then look at this in verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. My cry of what? Wretched man that I am. Here I am, Lord. I've done it again. Here I am, Lord. I've grown cold to you again. Here I am, Lord. I'm failing in sin again. I'm crying out to you. You've got to save me again in that sense. You've got to deliver me from this. Well, I waited for him, and that's what he did. He heard my cry, and he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. Have you ever felt that in your Christian experience? You're in this miry bog. You can't move forward. You're just stuck. It's largely due to your sin. You can't seem to pull it together. You can't get yourself out of this. But God gets us out. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And He put a new song in my mouth, a new one, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. you see it? See, but to get to Psalm 40, David had to walk through Psalm 38 and... 39 and those fresh experiences of his own failures so that he could once again experience the deliverance of God and have God put a new song in his mouth. What a joy that is. It brings glory to God when he gets us out of the mess we got ourselves into, when he delivers us out of the pit we dug for ourselves, you see. But I think also it's helpful for us, friends, because when we walk through those times, we are better equipped to help other people who are walking through those times. Now, this applies with any kind of suffering. But let me just zero in on this one particular type of suffering, and that's failure in our own sin. See, when somebody comes to you for help because they're failing in sin, 
And they use words that are almost identical to what Paul is saying about one particular sin they're struggling with. You're better equipped to help them. You know exactly where they are. And you know exactly what they need, which is grace. Because the last thing a person needs in that condition is more law. They know the law. That's not the problem. What they need is the grace. They need to be pointed to Christ again and to His Spirit and walked into Romans 8 and reminded of all the gospel promises of the book of Romans, you see. It enables us to help other people. So important for us to experience the same things that other pilgrims are going to walk through so we can be helpful for them. And that leads me to this main third point back in Romans 7 about this passage. And I'm going to connect it to what I was just saying about helping other people. This is a passage about the confession of sin. What is Paul essentially doing in this passage? He is confessing sin. He's confessing the fact that he is a sinner. You may not realize this, but for Paul, who was a former Pharisee, this was a risky thing to do. Paul, who was a former Pharisee in a group of people, most of whom, I think, from what we know, were striving by their own self-righteousness to keep the law and get right with God. This kind of open and honest and transparent and real and gritty language about his failure, what a contrast to what he would have been, to what many of his fellow Pharisees previous to Jesus would have talked like. See, this kind of sin confession is unique to the true Christian community, where we are a people who are not afraid to admit, to confess that we are not perfect, to confess that we are sinners even still, even though we're saved, even though we're following Christ. What a unique element of the true Christian experience. And because of the gospel, we're free to admit it. Because of Romans 1 through 6, you're free to admit I don't have it all together. And there are many things I do that I don't want to do. And I'm trying to learn through this. And I'm just admitting that because I can. Because you know what? I'm justified. And you know what? There's no condemnation to me. And you know what? There's no separation from God's love to me. And you know what? Christ will hold me fast. See, I can confess all these gospel truths because I, and I have the hope of glory and I'm going to be there one day and nobody can take this work of Christ away from me that He has done. You see, we have all of these gospel truths and we can admit, but yet on a daily basis, I still struggle with my sin. I fail. A sin-confessing community is absolutely essential and it, what, what it will be the distinction between fake, surface-level, self-righteous religion and true gospel community. Romans 7 is important for that. 
It's important that it gives us permission to follow the leader, the Apostle Paul, in the confession of our own sinfulness. The church must be a com- community of confessions, friend. First John chapter 1, verses 8-10 through 10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. See, right from the beginning, they had professing Christians who were already lying about their sin, who were already not wanting to admit it in the company of God's people. This is why every week, as part of our liturgy, we have built into our liturgy a confession of sin every single week. And we're going to do it together. We're going to confess before God and one another that we are still Romans 7 Christians. And at times, we fail. Which means me to land on this. Being this confessional community should mean that we are a community of grace. A sin-confessing community will by nature, or should, as a result of being a sin-confessing community, take on this culture of grace, you see. Because every time we confess our sin, what are we acknowledging? What do we need from God? Grace. Friends, what do we need from one another? Grace. See, the confession of sin actually promotes a gracious community. And this is why Jesus, when He's going to teach His disciples to pray, what does He say? I want you to pray this. Father, forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. See, already already in the Sermon on the Mount, already in teaching His disciples to pray. He's embedding in them this community of grace, a sin-confessing people, and also a grace-needing people and a grace-extending people to others. I love Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself as you're restoring him, I think is the idea. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So here in the community, somebody has sinned big time. They have not walked in a spiritual way. They have walked according to the flesh, which Paul says we all are guilty of at times. And Paul says, if anyone does anything and they're caught in that, you restore them now. You restore them, you who are spiritual, who are actually walking in the Spirit at the moment. You do so with gentleness. You're considering yourself. You're keeping watch on yourself because you know you too could be tempted. You see? That's a community of grace in action. And he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, I think Jesus explained that in John 13, verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And let me keep it in this context. We're talking about here, friends. In the sin of the community, somebody's sinning or somebody has sinned against you. We sin against Jesus every day of our lives. True or false, Calvary? True. His love is so perfect, so complete, so unending, each time it's matched with grace, with mercy, with love. You see how that works? That's how he's loved them. Peter would go out right after this and deny him. And they'd all abandon him. What does Jesus give to them? Love. And he says, now here's my commandment. And this is how I want you to bear one another's burdens. I want you to love one another the same way I have loved you. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. By the way, just by beginning this verse, that's the context of grace. God's chosen ones by grace, right? Holy and beloved by grace. He loved us, not because we were lovable, but because he set that eternal love on us and we love him because he first loved us. So it's all the context of grace. He said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Listen to this. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. As the Lord has loved you and forgiven you, and as the Lord continues to do that through your whole Romans 7 life, as He keeps pouring out on you love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, you do the same thing to one another. It's a community of grace. And a sin-confessing community will cultivate that grace within it. The problem is, Christian, and I'll lump myself in this with everyone here, unfortunately we are less like Jesus in this way and more like Moses. I mean, Moses, John said that Moses, through, through Moses came the law. And through Jesus came grace. See, some of us walk off the mountain with two tablets of stone at least, maybe more with our own law, not written with the finger of God, but by ourselves. Like, you want to be in relationship with me, you shall do this, and you shall not do that. As long now as you obey my law, we're good. We can be friends. But you break my law, and that's a real problem. Because my law comes without mercy. And therefore, that relationship is severed until, of course, you can earn it back through your righteous deeds, if indeed I will let you do that. You see? But we need to be like Jesus because aren't we followers of Jesus? And through Jesus comes grace. Every sinner, every repentant sinner, every foolish, wandering sinner, Jesus extends grace to them, love to them. See, friends, if we spend enough time in Romans 7, in this passage, even before we get to Romans 8, it will cultivate in us this conviction of our own sin, this confession of our own sin and our need of grace, and it will cultivate in us a community of grace. 
we will become, by God's grace, more like Jesus. Well, we're going to end it there, and we'll pick up where we left off next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace that You have set upon us. We are needy of grace every day. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for His love, His unending love. Father, we need Your Spirit to work in each one of us. We are at different stages of our Christian journey. Some are on mountaintops right now, some in valleys, and some just on a plain. Please help us. Walk with us as you have promised. Work in us as you have promised. And bring your good work, the work that you began, to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.